everyone and welcome to another episode of Building Voices, a CMS podcast looking at key themes in construction, court decisions and talking to those in the know about the industry. My name is Anne Thompson and I'm an associate in the Infrastructure, Construction and Energy Disputes team or ICE Disputes for short. Today I'm joined by Nick Case, a senior associate in the ICE Disputes team. Nick has acted on various high value contractual disputes and professional negligence claims. He works with both employers and contractors to resolve disputes and also provides project advisory services to stop disputes arising in the first place. Nick has joined me today to speak about a recent technology and construction court case relating to payment notices. However, before we get on to the specific case, it would first be worth spending a moment on payment notices more generally. So Nick, what are the requirements for payment notices? Yeah, hi, Anne. Good to be here. So uh, payment notices. Yeah, the requirements are, are set out in the amended Housing Grants Construction and Regeneration Act 1996. Uh, specifically, it's Section 110A, Subsection 2A. And that sets out two components uh, for a valid payment notice, which are that it must set out the sum that the payer considers to be or to have been due at the payment date and the basis on which that sum is calculated. So there's two separate components there. Those requirements are usually set out in any construction contract, but if they're not, or if they're not properly set out, um, the requirements will be imported by way of the scheme for construction contracts. Okay, so now is probably a good point to introduce the recent decision in the Technology and Construction Court. So this was the case of Downs Road Development LLP and Laxman by Construction UK Limited. This was a part eight hearing at the court, so a dispute which was concerned with a specific issue and not with the facts. This judgment was handed down in the early part of September this year, so reasonably hot off the presses. So Nick, could you give us a brief summary of the facts of the case and why it ended up in court? Yeah, so this court concerned the construction of four blocks of flats in East London, um, and the employer's agent had fallen into the habits of issuing an initial payment notice for each payment application before then issuing um, a fuller payment notice. And importantly, the first payment notice would only be for a round pound, and the second one would often be for much more than that. Now, the employer's agent said that it had taken this approach because the applications for payment had been put in by the contractor on the last permitted date, and that because the employer's agent claimed there was a large volume of material submitted with those applications, and they weren't presented in a particularly structured way. Now, a dispute arose between the parties as to the amount that the contractor was entitled to, and the contractor commenced an adjudication in which it asked the adjudicator to value the latest application. The employer tried to defend the adjudication, in part by saying that the contractor had incorrectly carried out part of its works, and that the employer was therefore entitled to set off its resulting losses. The adjudicator decided that he didn't have jurisdiction to address the employer's defence regarding those allegedly defective works and instead awarded a relatively small additional sum to the contractor. The employer obviously took issue with the uh, adjudicator not considering its defence and brought part eight proceedings in the TCC seeking a declaration that the adjudicator's decision was unenforceable because he hadn't taken into account their uh, defence around the alleged defective works. In response to those part eight proceedings in the TCC, the contractor stated that it thought that the decision was enforceable or that in the event it was found not to be enforceable, the amount stated in the contractor's payment applications was the amount that fell due for payment 
because the employer's payment notices were invalid. And so that's why we end up in the position where the court is looking at the validity of these payment notices. Before the court, the employer accepted that its second notice, that one that I mentioned earlier on, which was a fuller notice and for a greater amount, was out of time. And therefore, the court was only asked effectively to look at the first payment notice, which I mentioned earlier to you, and was for about a pound. The employer tried to defend the validity of its first notice by stating that it satisfied the test set out by Mr Justice Aikenhead in the 2015 case of Henier Investments and Beck Interiors. In that case, Mr Justice Aikenhead stated that notices should set out an adequate agenda for adjudication. However, the court rejected the employer's argument that the payment notice set out an adequate agenda for adjudication. And he went on to add that the court didn't think that a test in Henia was supposed to be a single test or indeed that it was supposed to replace the provisions of the Act. The payment notice needed to satisfy both parts of the test set out in the Construction Act. And that meant the notice giver had to set out the amount that he considered to be due, as well as the basis on which it was calculated. And in the end, having considered all the facts, the judge found that the payment notice failed to satisfy either part of those tests. Thank you, Nick. So could you just explain a little bit more around this point of genuinely considers? Yeah, so in this case, the court focused on the employer's agents uh, covering email for the first payment notice. And when the court was looking at that, the judge found that the employer couldn't realistically contend that the amount stated in that first payment notice was the sum that the employer genuinely considered to be due. And a lot of that was because of what was said in the covering email. So, for example, the covering email stated that a second payment notice would be issued and that the employer clearly envisaged that the second payment notice would set out a different figure. Otherwise, why else would you need a second notice? And whilst the employer may not have formed a view as to the precise amount it believed was due at the time of giving that first payment notice, um, the court said it wasn't credible to suggest it didn't realise that a substantially greater sum than £1 was due. Now, there is a bit of interesting extra commentary in the judgment where the judge added that in finding that a notice doesn't set out the sum considered to be due, there's no need to find any element of bad faith. It would simply be enough that an employer hadn't formed a view yet as to how much was due. So this is obviously not the first case on payment notices and definitely won't be the last. But how does this case compare to previous ones on payment notices? Um, you mentioned the Henier Investments case um, in the summary of, of this case. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So what the court was saying was that you have to consider each part um, of, of the test in the Act separately. So the case the employer relied on, as you say, there was Henier Investments and Beck Interiors. Now, that's a 2015 TCC decision. And that case concerned a pay less notice, but it's equally applicable here because the test under the Act for a pay less notice is the same for a payment notice. Now, in Henier, the issue is whether or not the pay less notice sets out the basis on which the sum stated as due had been calculated. Mr Justice Aikenhead, who gave the judgment in that case, considered the requirements of the Housing Grants Construction Regeneration Act as amended against the relevant background. And he stated that the statutory provisions need to be looked at in the context of the purposes of the Act. No real surprise there. So those purposes include not only the need to encourage cash flow to the contractor parties, but also the need to establish an agenda for speedy adjudication arising out of disputes between the parties. 
in the Downs case, the judge was saying that he didn't read the judgment in Henry and Beck as setting out a sole or a replacement test for the validity of a notice. And when you read the judgment in Henry and Beck and you look at the legislation, that's plainly got to be right. And whilst this is the first case that we're aware of on the considers point, there's obviously been a lot of judicial consideration of the second requirement, which should set out the basis on which the sum due has been calculated. Some interesting examples, and I won't go into all of them here, but there's a Scottish case from 2017, Moore Construction and Capital Residential Limited. And in that case, again, another one with a pay less notice. The pay less notice simply states that the, the sum due was zero, and it provided absolutely no explanation of, of how that had been calculated. And perhaps unsurprisingly, and in an understated way, the judge said that there needs to be in a notice at least an indication of how the sums were arrived at. One other interesting case that's worth briefly touching on is Grove Developments and S&T UK Limited, um, a case that's got quite a lot of fame in the context of smash and grab. But this is the first instance decision in 2018. And again, it was looking at pay less notice. And it's interesting because on its face, the pay less notice did not set out the basis on which the sum stated as due had been calculated. But there had been a detailed calculation sent um, to the recipient five days earlier. And the TCC found that would have permitted the reasonable recipient to understand precisely how the calculation was reached, even though it hadn't set it out in the notice itself. Clearly then, there's no issue in principle with a notice referring to a detailed calculation set out in another document. But that can be a risky approach as there might be issues around whether it was clear what documents being referred to or whether any recipient actually received that original document. Thank you, Nick. Um, so as you've gone through those cases, you've mentioned two sort of limbs or requirements. So how do those two limbs, the genuinely considers point and the basis of calculation interact? Yeah, although the Downs decision clearly shows that the court will address each limb, each requirement in the Act independently and look at them separately, they are interrelated in one sense, because if a notice sets out in detail how the sum due has been arrived at or has been calculated, evidentially it may be difficult to show, without any other documentation at least, that the notice giver doesn't have a genuine belief in that figure. So finally, and probably most importantly, what do you think are the implications of the Downs Roads case? And what should listeners be doing or be aware of, either from the payee or payor perspective? Well, whilst we have experience of this considers point being run in adjudications previously, as I've said before, this is the first time I've seen the courts grappling with it. And I expect that will probably give more weight to the arguments in adjudications and probably lead to more parties adopting it in the smash and grab adjudication. Of course, I've mentioned that the point applies equally to pay less notices, and that's also true in the context of a contractor's payment application. So in that sense, whilst it's also uh, has the potential to give greater grounds for a smash and grab adjudication to be commenced, it might also be an area where we see employers using this argument to defend the smash and grab. So for example, if the employer hasn't given a valid pay less or payment notice, it may nevertheless be able to try to um, deflate the uh, the claim against it by simply saying that the contractor's application itself uh, was in some way overvalued or or there was no genuine belief in it. Now I expect that this will probably just add more heat than light to these adjudications. Um, trying to establish a party's state of mind is notoriously difficult 
particularly where there's no contemporaneous documentary evidence to support the claim. But in that sense, it might be that on most occasions, this ground of attack or defence simply serves to increase the party's costs without taking them a great deal further and understanding the actual value of the works or, under, or otherwise resolving substantive disagreements between them. With that in mind, the parties will want to make sure they avoid issuing holding notices or giving any indication that a notice is subject to revision or is only interim in nature. Um, you know, just one example of this that we sometimes see is that parties may want to avoid including in the notices any language suggesting items have not been properly assessed. So those references we see from time to time to you know, payments being on account or subject to uh, further assessment, etc. Well, thank you, Nick, for covering a very complex topic in such a short space of time. Um, it does sound as though this case is the court sharpening their teeth on the requirements for payment notices and is one that employers in particular probably need to be aware of, even if, as you say, Nick, this form of attack doesn't actually take the parties further forward in determining the value of the works. So we wait to see what further implications come from this case. We hope you join us again for future episodes of the Building Voices podcast. And thank you all very much for listening. Music